Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So, I thought we'd have you read first. Okay. Uh, We're discussing the appropriate amount of time. So, yeah, this will take about 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> no, it's six or seven. Uh, late in the book, obviously, but it's just a flashback. It's pretty self-contained. Jack is one of the main characters. <clears throat> when Jack was a boy, six or seven at the oldest, still, oh, and I should say this takes place during Prohibition. Um, What's the name of the book? Thanks. <laughs> When Jack was a boy, six or seven at the oldest, still in knickers and barely able to read, his father enlisted him in a caper. At the time, the old man was making most of his living recovering stolen money and getting a percentage. A pair of yeggs from the Central Valley had been knocking over post offices. Jack still remembered their names, Joe Lanigan and Fast Eddie Carr. The old man was commissioned to find them and reclaim the loot. He put out feelers all around Highland Park and was waiting for word. Dave Hammond was a beat cop then. The old man had told him about Lanigan and Carr. Hammond knew who to look for and kept his eyes peeled. One afternoon, just after Jack had gotten home from school, Hammond swung by the house on Meridian with news. Lanigan and Carr had just ducked into a speakeasy on Figueroa between avenues 56 and 57. The old man picked up the Roscoe and said, come on, Jackie, let's go to work. Hammond and the old man charged down Avenue 52 toward Fig. Jack tried to walk with them for the six or seven blocks across, but he couldn't keep up. He'd trail behind and then have to jog to catch him again. The two men didn't talk. The old man stopped at a house on the corner of Marmion and Avenue 54. You two stay out here, he said. Jack sat on a low wall and watched a cat stalking a bluebird perched on a green jacaranda. Hammond fiddled with his handcuffs. Two minutes later, the old man came out with a galvanized two-quart bucket full of draft beer. He handed the bucket to Jack. You get a smack for every drop that spills. You got that? Jack nodded. Good. Now walk in front where I can see you. Jack started up Marmion. He kept a rigid grip on the bucket and walked slowly as he could. Hammond kicked him in the butt. Quit crawling, kid. We got to move. Jack sped up. A little beer sloshed out of the pail. The old man cracked Jack across the back of the head. Pay attention. For two blocks up Marmion and one on Avenue 56, Jack walked a tightrope between not being too slow and getting a kick in the ass and not being too fast, spilling beer and getting a slap on the back of the head. The old man stopped him on the corner of Fig and 56. He squatted down in front of Jack, took the bucket of beer from his hand, set it on the ground, took two photographs from inside his jacket. See these two fellas, Jack? Jack took the photograph and studied their faces. Thick eyebrows and a squashed nose on the one, a sleek mustache and chin dimple on the other. I need you to go in that doorway over there and find these two men. Walk up to them and offer to sell them the bucket of beer. If they don't buy it, sell it to someone else. But you notice where these two lugs are sitting? If they're sitting at a bar stool, you count how many bar stools between them and the door. 
If they're sitting at a table, you draw a map inside your head, and you come out here and draw it with a stick in the dirt. You pay attention. You tell me what color suit they're wearing. You tell me if they have a hat on. You tell me who they're talking to. You notice everything and come back out here and paint that picture for me. You got it? Jack nodded. It seemed like the easiest part of the caper. He walked the last half block to the speak with no one kicking or smacking him. He opened the large wooden door with a window slat at the top and stepped into the dark room. He waited for half a minute until his eyes adjusted. A long bar lined the wall to the left. There were no stools for him to count. Two women and six men stood along the bar. No bartender worked behind it. The men had a few bottles between them. An older kid sat on the end of the bar. Jack recognized him from grammar school. A working man in shirt sleeves and suspenders signaled the kid over. He gave the kid some coins and an order. The kid raced past Jack and out the door. Six four-top tables sacked to Jack's right. All, all of them were empty except for the one farthest from the door. A man with bushy eyebrows and another with a sleek mustache sat with their back to the walls and their eyes to the door. Joe Lanigan and Fast Eddie Carr. Lanigan wore a double-breasted pinstripe suit dark enough to match his wild black hair. Carr's purple jacket hung over the back of the chair behind him. He wore a white shirt and an empty shoulder holster. The gun sat on the table, barrel pointed toward the door. Jack called out, bucket of beer, 25 cents. One of the workers at the bar dug into his pocket, grabbed a quarter, and flipped it at Jack. The quarter splashed into the beer. Jack dug his dirty hand into the pail and pulled it out. <laughs> the man shot Jack a mean look. Jack duffed his cap and said, thank you. He raced out of the bar and around the corner to meet his father and Hammond. He'd picked up every detail and even drew the map in the dirt. Three times he told his father that Fast Eddie had a gun pointed toward the door. The old man patted Jack on the cheek a couple times. You done good, kid, he said. Now run on home. Jack looked at Hammond and the old man, then took off in a sprint. He turned at Marmion and backtracked up toward Avenue 57. Halfway up the block, he heard gunshots, four or five of them, in quick succession. Jack picked up his pace. By the time he made the corner of Fig and 57th, he could see the old man walking out of the speak. He held Joe Lanigan by the collar with one hand and Lanigan's money belt in the other. Hammond waited outside to slap the cuffs on the egg. Fast Eddie Carr, Jack later learned, got himself shot that day, which made Jack the finger man. Thanks. So, um, I read, uh, so we met at, um, at a Vermin on the Mount reading in San Diego in 2014, and he read that, he read um, a version of that, like an early draft. And so I was reading this book, and I got to that part, I was like, this is that section. Because it's memorable. I don't remember all the readings I hear. Um, so um, this is your first real foray into full-on crime fiction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've, you've, done all kinds of, you've done all kinds of fiction before. Um, you're an academic. And the last book that I interviewed for you for actually too was that short story collection called *The Metaphysical Ukulele*, which is also excellent. Um, so, how did you how did you end up um, writing crime fiction? How did you come to this book? Okay, um, well, a couple of things. I, I I read mostly crime fiction, you know, and and uh, especially now that I'm a little f further along in my career, I don't I don't I don't have to read the great books anymore. Um, so so I I read what I like, and, and it's mostly crime. And then when I was doing the metaphysical ukulele, I, was, I did a, a, 
in case you guys haven't heard of that book, it's a book where I wrote true stories about authors' lives and then fictionalized them, and I gave them a ukulele. And I, uh, I wrote one on Chester Himes, one of my favorite writers. And when I was doing research on Chester Himes, um, I came across this quote, and it was from when he was in his early 50s, and he was broke, and, and he needed money. And he went to the translator of his first book. He was living in France. So he went to Marcel Duhamel, who translated If He Hollers, Let Him Go, and asked Duhamel, hey, man, can you translate another book of mine? I need money. Duhamel said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm editing books now. I'm editing crime novels. Why don't you write me a crime novel? And so Haim said, because uh, I don't write crime. And, and Duhamel said, it's easy. A man walks into a room. There's a dead body. He looks right. He looks left. Follow him. <laughs> and then he said, don't worry about the ending. Um, that's, or don't worry who did it. That's what the ending is for. And uh, give me 220 tight pages. And so, and so I thought, man, I got to try that. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, it's not exactly what I did. I mean, it doesn't start with a man walking into a room, but I start with a, with a murder and then try to solve it. Yeah, and, um, and there's also a ukulele. Yes, there is. Yeah, there's always a ukulele, apparently. And actually, the part with the ukulele also has some pinch on, like some pinch-in overtones. There's a song. And mm -hmm. um, how do you, so how do you see like, your other work feeding into this one? I don't know. Um, I guess I guess we just keep writing the same novel again and again. And so if we can try to change genres, you know, maybe, maybe we can spread it just out. Just repurpose. <laughs> um, no, that's a good idea. We should all do that. Uh, no, no. I I mean I'm, I uh, I I do play the ukulele and I, I play it absurdly. And um, and so yeah, I usually like like to write songs for my characters on the ukulele so there is that one I didn't really I it's an old there was a, a ukulelist in the 40s George Formby and he was British and he, he had this huge following um and so I just took a George Formby song and I changed the words oh yeah I do that all the time um I make songs into basset hound songs fairly <laughs> regularly um basset hounds are kind of like the ukulele of the dog yeah, world actually, <laughs> like you just look at them that and is, you smile that and is not like, wrong yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so okay, so this is this is not only crime fiction; it's a specific genre, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, although feel free to contest this. I mean, it kind of falls under hardboiled detective fiction. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to ask: do you do you consider it do you consider it a hardboiled detective novel? Because because you know you you do a lot of things here. I don't know, like because that's the genre that I started writing in. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm like an Asian girl, so like for me. It was immediately like anyone seeing me writing this would be like, oh, she's subverting the genre. Mm -hmm. But you're like a white dude, but you're also subverting the genre. Okay. It's just not as clear on its face, but it's like very obvious as a reader who's familiar with the genre. So I'm curious about, um, you know, how you approach this book, if you thought of it in that way, and how you um, kind of played with the genre tropes and conventions, and um, how much of it was conscious, how much of it was not, like if there was anything in particular that you wanted to... Um, wanted to grapple with. Okay. Um, well, Steph and I have talked about some of these things before, but, and I think you guys probably know Steph's work, but she has the Juniper Song series, and, and one of the things I like about Juniper Song is that she's impacted by all the death, you know, and one of the mm -hmm. things that would always bum me out about, about say, Philip Marlowe is uh, he walks into a room and, and, you know, people he knows are dying. People people he slept with get shot two, two yeah, weeks later like and he's just like eh, you know <laughs> um, and uh and 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 to a modern reader that just seems so 
heartless, you know, and uh, and and these guys are always seem to be coming back from war, just totally impervious from having seen the horrors of mm-hmm. kind of the one of, one of the most horrific acts of humanity ever, and mm-hmm. and um, and so I wanted them to to be human and have pain and deal with death, and and then uh, and then the other thing we talked about is is just the the whole femme fatale thing. Um, I, uh, it, it bums me out too, you know, that if, if there's a woman, she's deadly, she's sinister, and usually if you look back at it from a contemporary perspective, it's usually the guy who's the problem, mm-hmm. you know, so I wanted, to, I wanted to write kind of more real women characters, and I, and I hope I did. Oh, yeah, and, and uh, this book is anchored by, um, well, primarily two um, mm-hmm. female characters who really drive it, um, in some ways more than Jack, or at least simultaneously, um, there's, um, so, I mean, just the brief setup is that Jack is coming home from World War II. He has been presumed dead. Um, instead, he is alive and his wife has died and, under questionable circumstances. And so he and his sister-in-law, who's his w- wife's um, twin, end up kind of investigating this story. Um, and... You know, um, I don't want to give too much away, but um, one of the things I do like, too, is that um, you play with the idea of this, like, detective as this kind of cool, competent person who just, like, intuitively goes into things and, like, knows exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. And Jack is not that person. He's yeah. traumatized, you know. He doesn't, he's not, he's never, he's rarely, like, the smartest person in the room. He's not a goofball, but, like, he's somebody who feels real. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about Jack and how you conceived of him kind of as a hard-boiled hero, or if you even think of him that way? Well, going, going back to the 40s novels, um, you know, when, it, when Raymond Chandler, or uh, Philip Marlowe and Raymond Chandler, I mean, he's, he's often the smartest guy in the room. He often picks things up, but he, he missteps a lot, you know. He, I, I, think, I think if you go, like, to the, to the real noir, um, those characters are a little bit more flawed, and, but um, but what, what bums me out are kind of more the Sherlock Holmes detectives, the guys who can figure everything out. They can find like a hair on the ground and tell an entire story out of it. And um, and what that kind of invites is this I- ideology where <laughs> a white guy knows exactly how everything happened, and and we just need to trust him. It's kind of um, and then and then like kind of converse to that is is like the the Starsky and Hutch effect. I don't know if any of you guys remember Starsky and Hutch, but but the plot of every every episode was these two white guys have a hunch as to who committed a crime, so they go around beating up brown people until their hunch is proven true, <laughs> and then and then they save the day. And uh, and so like I, I hate that shit. You know, I mean, it, it's just uh, um, I, I've met enough of those guys who who are convinced they're right and they're wrong, and they just you know. Um, and so I wanted Jack to be again a little little more human, a little more real. Yeah, and then, um, you know, and also, I, I, I mean, I wanted to talk to you about the title of this, because it refers explicitly to um, to Willa, mm-hmm. right? I mean, um, the, 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 the wife who's been killed. So it's like, on the, on the face of it, it's a dead girl book, but mm-hmm. she's alive for like most of the, most of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about kind of how you how you conceptualized her and also her twin Gertie, and also how you differentiated the two women who are, after all, twins. Right, right. Um, well, 
I, the place where I teach is Cal State Channel Islands, and it's a uh, former psychiatric hospital. It was a Camarillo State Mental Hospital for, for many years, and uh, for, for like a half a century. And when I was doing research for this book, I read a, uh, a memoir by a woman named Wilma Wilson, who was a patient at the hospital. And so I started kind of, well, and Wilma Wilson was killed exactly the way Wilma is in the book. And oh. And so, so I started with Wilma Wilson's. Uh, oh wow! Murder. I didn't realize it was that ripped from history. It's it's pretty it's pretty close. That's so, shocking. Yes. Yeah, so okay. I, I that was a later question, but go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so, I well, want to hear that. So what happened? To, I, I Wilma Wilson wrote a memoir about her time in the psych hospital, and it's it's amazing. It's called they call them camisoles, and the camisoles are the straitjackets, and um, and it, it's like this really funny memoir about her time being kind of involuntarily held at a, at a psych hospital for no good reason. And, um, and so after, after reading it, I, I was like, well, what happened to Wilma? So I started looking it up, and I found just kind of a blurb in an L.A. Times article that in 1945, 46, I think it was, she, um, she was at her, at her house at a little bungalow, and, and a guy came by and wanted something that she didn't want to give. And so she ran out into the street and started screaming for help, and no one would come out to help her. And so he, the guy came out and he grabbed her and dragged her back in, into her apartment or to her bungalow and killed her. Um, and so, so I was like, all right, well, so that's the murder. And I'll, I'll name Wilma after Wilma Wilson. But then I made the rest of the stuff up about Wilma. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, then, yeah. And, you know then, then, just, then I just made stuff up. And, uh, and then Gertie, um, I, I was reading all these books about script girls, you know, wh yeah. women, women who wrote screenplays for the And I saw that uh, Faulkner has a... Cameo, bit yeah. rolling yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and one of the things that I read was was Faulkner had a mistress when he was out here and met a carpenter, and she wrote a memoir about their time together. And so I read that, and so so Gertie kind of comes out of all the all the things I read out of Script Girls. Yeah, no, I mean, I th I found that stuff um, really interesting, and I'm, I actually want to come back to that. But I wanted to ask you about Camrio because. Um, I, vi I visited CSU uh, Channel Islands like what was that like two years ago, mm -hmm. um, and sh and Sean took me around um, because it's actually like a Cal State campus built on this old mentalist institution and um, and it's pretty cool and creepy and you have other you, Madhouse Fog uses that kind of as a setting. Mm -hmm. um, and so we went around there, all these hallways that once you know that this is what it was, they start looking creepy. And then um, I remember like standing on a bench to look into like a defunct bowling alley that was there for the inmates. Um, so you're, you spend a lot of time here. Mm -hmm. And so obviously it's become fascinating to you. Can you, can you talk, can you talk more about it and like, uh, how, you know, how it's kind of crept into your imagination? Yeah. Well, when I, fr when I first started at Channel Islands, they hadn't renovated any. They'd renovated oh. only like two buildings, you know, because I, I started there in the second year of the university, and, and the ho I started in two thousand four, and the hospital still had patients living there in ninety seven. So a lot of the a lot of the workers, like the grounds workers, had worked at the hospital, and then now worked at at, at the campus, and and they were all like there were the room where you, you would go, because the library was too small to have books, so you'd have to go to this kind of overstock room, and they still had. Um, like hooks on the wall from where they would chain up patients. They still had the tubs from where they do hydrotherapy. And, um, and so even, um, like there's a kind of a, a famous picture of the institution uh, and it's a bunch of 
bunks in a row and a bunch of women dressed in white who are patients standing in front of their bunks. And I looked at that picture and I was like, holy shit, I teach in this classroom sometimes. And so some, <laughs> sometimes I'll have entire semesters where I'm in this classroom and I can see all the students, but I can also like in my imagination see the beds and see the, see the patients. Um, and, uh, and so yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's it's always there, and it's just it's just fun for me to think about it. Is the um, was involuntary commitment like something that was commonplace? Yeah. I mean, and was it was that particularly so for women? Uh, Wilma is committed ap by her um, father-in-law, who um, thinks she's just out of control because she's like she's she likes to drink and she like has sex with men after she thinks her husband is dead. Um, and so she's kind of involuntary commi involuntarily committed for like, you know, pretty normal by today's standards activities. Yeah, and, the, and that, that was common in the, in the 30s, I think California had a law. I read this, but I haven't been able to verify it. Um, but that California had a law where they were really trying to curb uh, female alcoholism. And so it was very, very easy to get a, a young woman committed for alcoholism. And then, as these things kind of happen in our society, the hospitals recognize that, well, women who are committed, there's nothing really wrong with them, can then be our maids, and we don't have to pay for a, a janitorial staff. So there was kind of a, a steady stream of women who were brought to Camarillo for, for alcoholism, and all they did was work there as an unpaid maid for two months, and then, and then were, their hold was released. And so, and, and I, I mean, I think that was kind of like well known that, that um, that uh, well, you know, let them let them get a good work ethic, you know, and let them straighten up and dry out, and so it was just kind of accepted. And then um, in this book, I mean, without spoiling too much, there's kind of a pipeline that goes, and and I mean, I feel like this is very much in like the hard-boiled vein, which is that there's a there's like a system in place that's a corrupt system that kind of ties into the power structures, but also victimizes the people that it's supposed to protect. Um, and um, I mean, I imagine some of those details were invented, but was there, to your knowledge, any kind of basis for that part of it? Well, there, there's this old, another, I read, a, I read a, a few hospital memoirs. There was one run by a, a nurse, and this was in the early 70s when, when she worked at Camarillo. And, and, uh, and she, claimed that, uh, she claimed that a lot of things were going on there. Um, I won't talk about the thing you're talking about because I kind of don't want to give it away. But, um, but also there was, uh, she, she was told by psych techs that there was this massive mass grave in the, in the back of the hospital that whenever it, it, uh, patients died who didn't have family that they would be buried in this mass grave. And, uh, and so I read it. And I was like, I don't know. I, I feel like she got her leg pulled a lot. You know, I feel like she was gullible. And, but, but maybe it was true. And then we were building a dorm right where she said the mass grave was. <laughs> so when the construction was going on, I kept going out there and trying to check it out. I was like looking for skulls. I was talking to construction you workers. You're like a dog. Yeah. So I have the skull. It's sitting on my... No, no, no. There was no mass grave. It was, they were pulling her leg. Um, or if it was, it wasn't in the place where, where they told her it was, you know. Um, but, but no, everywhere it could have been, um, based on how she described it, there's been new construction there. And, and, and no, it w you couldn't, I mean, if they found a mass grave, they, they wouldn't have built over it. <laughs>
That's what they want you to think. <laughs> I, I think if they found a mass grave, our archaeology people would be like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Let me carbon date that. Um, no, no I, no, I mean, it's, it's just too out in the open. Like, it'd be too obvious that you're yeah. pulling that out. Um, well, that's how, that's how conspiracies, work, conspiracies work, Sean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they yeah. happen right before our very eyes. Um, so, okay, so you're, you're, you write about violence in this book, um, you know, all manner of violence, um, including violence against women, including violence against, um, you know, the main characters, you know, um, including the man. Uh, so how do, you, how do you approach writing violence, and particularly as a male writer, writing about violence against women? Um. Like how do how do I keep it from being a spectacle or or? Yeah, I mean, like, do you have rules for yourself? You know, if because because you know this is a book where the primary the 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 primary murder is of a is of a woman, and mm -hmm. you know there are lots of pit there are lots of pitfalls for writers of either either sex to fall into. But I, I'm only asking you this because I think you navigate it well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm curious if you like. Um, set any parameters for yourself as you do it? I, I, I don't, but I don't enjoy those parts. You know, like, to, to me, the, the fun part of a, a crime novel is not not the crime, but, like, the people trying to figure it out, people trying to get away with it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the kind of the, those, those interchanges, trying to find some semblance of truth, trying to understand why it matters. You know, all those things are important to me. The violence is just kind of a necessary plot mm -hmm. point. Um, and I think, like some some writers, when you read some writers, you know they just in, enjoy violence and are, are yeah, kind of getting can, off on writing tell. it. Um, and and I don't get off on writing it, so I, I I wouldn't think it would seem that way when when it's written. Yeah, I, I remember reading like a book of where like one of the bad guys had like weird eyelids and they were like cut from foreskins or something, and I was just like, <laughs> I was just like, come on. <laughs> You were so proud of yourself when you thought of this, and you should have thrown it in the trash. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to get back to what we were talking about with the script girls. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I, um, you know, one thing that I enjoy, enjoyed seeing in this book, knowing that you study Pynchon and mm -hmm. postmodernism, is, you know, there's a book within a book. Mm -hmm. There's Gertie's account of, of, the, of her sister's murder that has kind of a screenplay element. Gertie herself is somebody, is a script girl who does a lot of screenwriting. And I guess it's not ruining it to talk about the epilogue a little bit. But no, there's, there's like a movie version of this book that kind of comes out of the events. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and all throughout this, there are big questions of authorship, um, you know, who gets credit for these stories, how accurate these stories end up being. Um, and it just felt like a very big theme, so I wondered if you had anything to say about that, if you wanted to riff on it. Well, mostly that was just capitalist of me. I mean, like, Kiyoshi's here, he's a graphic novelist. I wanted him to write a graphic, like, if I could encourage a graphic <laughs> novel of this. You know, I'm, been, I'm trying to pitch it as a movie and a TV. No, I'm, just, I'm kidding about all of that. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to do any of that. But Kiyoshi, I mean, if you wanted to, I'd be all, I'd be all for it. I've, uh, um, but I wouldn't put that kind of pressure on you. Um, but, uh, no, no, um... I didn't think about any of that as I was writing it. Mm. 
and and um, it it was only kind of later that I was like, oh, I, I guess I really am doing a lot of st- a lot of stuff with this, and so I was aware of it. And in revision, I I kind of played around with it, but n- none of that was actually conscious. Um, I mean, it's a really fun part of the book. Um, there's um there's a part where um, oh yes, yeah, so the movie that comes out of this book. That comes out of the events of the book is called Darkness and Sweet, which was the original title of mm-hmm. your novel. I remember that, mm-hmm. um, which is also a great title. And um, the idea for it comes out of Jack talking to Gertie and saying, we write what happened to us, but we fix everything. We make the world simple again. Mm-hmm. And I found that pretty compelling. I mean, and so he, so there comes, there's this movie where, um, you know, Tom Fillmore comes on and going back to this, I'm just going to read this really quick. You know, He was everything Jack wanted to be, beautiful, smart, one step ahead of everyone else, a good detective, a man who could figure things out based on the evidence in front of him, a man who didn't need his ex-sister-in-law to solve the mystery and explain the solution to him, a man who could walk through the filth and depravity of the modern world and come out clean, a man who saw death and inflicted death and wasn't haunted by it, a man who lived in two dimensions. I mean, I just just really loved that, and I thought, um, you know, I thought that conceit really worked well for you and I, I don't know I thought it added a lot to the book but um yeah so oh I did want to ask so Faulkner was he just drunk and relying on script girls all the time I think so <laughs> um you know like no no one will say but um but so also in in metaphysical ukulele I, I wrote a story about Lee Brackett who wrote the screenplay for The Big Sleep, and then she also wrote the first draft of Empire Strikes Back, and in between those two, she had a you know, 40-year career in Hollywood. And, um, and the story with, with Faulkner and Lee Brackett writing The Big Sleep was that supposedly Faulkner um, tore the book in half and, and gave her half of it and said, you write this half of the screenplay and I'll write that half. Um, <laughs> and then, like, bits and pieces that Faulkner wrote have come out and they're these kind of three page long speeches, you know? And so so like you can imagine someone speaking for three minutes in a movie, just, you know, and then someone else responding for three minutes. Um, So so apparently what happened is they both wrote half of it and then she did the revisions and then she was on set to rewrite dialogue. So to me, that sounds like she wrote the whole fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, and there, there are just so many stories like that with, with, um, with Faulkner and, and other writers. They, they weren't all women, but I, I think they were mostly women. And then Meta Carpenter um, was rumored to have written a bunch of his stuff, but she didn't write her own memoirs. That made me question whether she really did mm. that. She had, a, she, she had a ghostwriter write that. Though she was of an age at that point too. So we, I, 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 don't, I don't know if it was just kind of age where she just, someone wanted to give her money to do this and she didn't want to do it or, I, I just don't know. Yeah. Um, um, there's also, you know, there's a lot of, um, this is a book with like a lot of acting and role playing. Um, you know, there's, Gertie works in the movies and there's a part where he wanders on set um, and they're like, oh, we need like a kind of, Yeg. What is the? That's like a gangster yeg. Yeah, yeah like a. I enjoy that terminology. Yeah. I didn't know that one. Um, and so he wanders on set and ends up like punching the lead actor. <laughs> um, and and uh, 
And there was a line in there that was just like, play it like it's, play it like it's all a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, which I now don't remember the context because I wrote it in my notes app and I don't uh-huh. have the context on here. Um, uh, he says something really shitty about <laughs> Jack's wife and so Jack's yeah, trying okay. to be cool. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, he says it to himself. Yeah. But there's also, you know, th- there are parts, there are the twins, you know, so there are doubles of each other and Gertie, and they even do the twin switch at one point. Um, you know, and they're in alternating chapters because the book is told between um, Jack's and Wilma's points of view. And in Jack's chapters, Gertie is very active. And in Wilma's chapters, Wilma is the one who's driving the action. Um, and then there's also the kind of doubling with like Jack and Jack and his dad, who has mm-hmm. the same name. And sometimes people confuse him with him. Um, you know, like... I, I, I felt while I was reading this, like you could tell that Jack was kind of always on the edge of seeing himself as this player in this story, mm-hmm. um, which also has, I don't know, I feel like that's something that taps into this genre, but also a lot of other genres, including some that you might have more knowledge about. I mean, was this something that you were consciously playing with? Um, <laughs> well, no, but... Um, <laughs> But I'm I'm also a literature professor, yeah. so like I I do I do what you. This is my just, this is my position paper. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I I see everywhere where you're coming from, you know, like and <laughs> and so like I think about it, and I was like, oh yeah yeah, that's all, that's all totally in there. <laughs> I, I, I wish I I wish I'd done that on purpose, um, you know. But but um, n- no, I, uh, I like I I had that I I just kind of sat down and typed. <laughs> so you know? why the twins? So why the twins? Um, because the other true true aspect of this story is um, I had a, I had an uncle Jack and he was in World War II, and his middle name was Chesley and the main character in this book is named Jack Chesley, and uh, and and my uncle Jack was a was a cool guy I liked him a lot. Um, when he was away in the war, his plane got shot down. He was presumed dead, just like the Jack in the book, and while he was gone. His wife died. She was not murdered. She had health issues. Um, and so his wife died. And when he came back, um, he actually married his wife's twin. Whoa. And so, um, yeah, yeah. And so it was just like this weird family story. It was story. just there. Yeah. And, and, and the, story I, the story I read just at the beginning of this is this story. It's the only, like, real, like, really real thing from Jack, though it, it happened in Brooklyn. But my, my grandfather was a hired thug, like a Pinkerton. And, um, and so he, that's what he did. He, would, he made his money by, um, by retrieving stolen money mm. and, uh, and getting a percentage. And, and so he really did send my Uncle Jack into a, into a speakeasy during Prohibition with a, with a bucket of beer. And, 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 and then Jack told me, yeah. So I, I gave him the bucket of beer, and I stood outside. And then I heard a bunch of gunshots, and here comes the old man. He's got a money belt. He's got the guy with him, and only one of the two came out. And, uh, and so that was one of Jack's stories. So again, like all, these, all the true stuff was just a starting point. So I said, all right, I have Wilma's murder, and I have Jack's story returning. And so I'm going to make a crime novel out of those two. I mean, that's pretty good starting material. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so that, that, that's where it came I from. I don't have any of that. Yeah. Well, Jack, Jack was a great storyteller. Um, but, I mean, I think like all Carswells, we believe a certain amount. You know? <laughs> <laughs> not most. You know, that certain is not 50%. Um, so. Oh, wow. No, that's a great story. So how about the other, like, period details? Like, when you're writing a – is this your first historical 
I was trying to except for that. like the historical stories and metaphysical ukulele, yeah, yeah, but all yeah, the yeah. rest, yeah. So, did you have to get deep into the research, or was that just kind of incidental because you were already reading these memoirs and talking to people who lived that time period? Well, that w that was the research I did. Okay. I, I read a I read a bunch of crime novels, so all the slang came out of crime mm. novels. Novels. So whenever I'd come across a cool word, I'd just underline it. Um, um, and then what I was doing was I was trying to find like really old crime novels no one no one's really read, like. Um, like, actually, uh, Jay over here turned me on to an essay by Gilles Deleuze, a French philosopher, where he talks about the weirdest book that uh, the Syrian noir came out with. And so, um, so then I was like, oh, I got to read that book. And it was really hard to do, but I was fine, hard to get. But I was finding all of these really old novels just um, on used book sites that, that had been out of print for mm. 60, 70 years and reading those and, and uh, just because they overdo the dialogue in those, you know, huh. so you can kind of overget the slang. You know, so you, so that I did did a lot of that too. What was your favorite slang word that you picked up from there? Oh shoot, um, there's a lot of good slang in here. Yeah, yeah. Um, in one of those novels, uh, one character says to the other, "Let's go have a chat," and she says, "Let's go bump gums." And I thought, oh, that's, that's. <laughs> at first, I was I thought, Are she asking her to make out with her, and then I was like, no, 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 they they just want to have a conversation, and so, um, so that was that was my favorite of them. Did that make it in? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's okay. in there. It's in there. <laughs> um, but there were some that I really loved, and I was really trying to force them in. I'm like, nah, just you can overdo it. Um, yeah, it quickly it sounds like, ah, eh, see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to have them all wearing high waisted pants and talking fast. Yeah. Um, so, was there were there other books that you read for this that um, are easy to find that people would, would that you would recommend, or or even just like, what are you reading now? Like, what's what's good? Um, well, I mean, the, the easiest stuff, I, I, I went and read all the Chandler, I read all mm -hmm. the Kane, um, I, I read a lot of David Goodis, though David Goodis is getting harder to find now, it, it was all back in print for a bit, and now it seems to all be out of print again, mm -hmm. um, and then what I'm reading now is, is not, not, uh, not noir, um, what I'm reading now is a book called The Long Drop by Denise Mina. Oh, know? I love that book. Yeah, so far so good, it's, it's blowing I mean, my it's mind. it's not not noir. Like oh, it's not old war. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah it is yeah. actually. No, it's set in the fifties. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's her first historical. Uh, Denise Mina is a Scottish crime writer. She's contemporary. I love her so much. You're nodding like you know for sure. Yeah, she's, she's great. Yeah. <laughs> um. So what are you? So what are you working on next? Um. I know you're you're taking sabbatical, right? Mm-hmm. Has that started yet? No, not. not no, yet. it's it starts uh, next week. Oh, okay. Um, so what, like, daunting project do you have that's going to make you feel guilty for the next year? Oh, I, I, I won't feel guilty about anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, hopefully everyone here buys a copy so that Colleen wants a sequel to this. Um, so that's, that's, what I, that's, what, uh, that's the hardest push I'm going to make on it. But no, <laughs> but no really, I, I'd, I'd like to write a sequel. That's, that's the hope. Okay. I'm also doing a, a book of scholarship. Which, okay. Um, it's kind of kind of like lit theory about the emotion of disgust and and kind of the treatment of like the term redneck and so I'm doing mm. a lot of scholarship on that right now. It's a good title. Disgusting rednecks. No, just rednecks. <laughs> I could see that. I could see that on literally the shelf. Um, how about um, so 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 a sequel would follow. Jack and Gertie. Yeah, yeah. Because when I was when I was writing the book, I didn't intend to, Gertie to be anywhere near that big of a character. Oh, okay. And she just she just kind of came in, you know, like you know how it is. Sometimes you're yeah, in the no, character. Yeah, no, she's that a really fun character. Yeah, yeah. You're just like, oh, I got to find a reason to bring this character okay. back. I enjoyed that. 
So, so yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's a second Jack and Gertie situation. Uh, at the end of that. Um, okay. Um, do you want to open it up for questions? Sure. sure. Anybody? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you would probably say the same thing, but I don't, I don't want to write a story where it could be set anywhere else, but where it's set, you know, and, and, um, and, and California has such a, well, Los Angeles has such a rich literary history, and, and there's so much to draw from, and it's, it's just, it's such a unique place that it, um, and, I, and I live in Ventura, so I like, I, I like to, to mix in Ventura, too. It's its, its own weird city. Um, it's uh, it's very lame for anyone who's a property developer, um, but uh, <laughs> but but so I mean to to me it's this is this is such a unique place that it's important for for the place to be. You know, a driving force in the book. Is that is that what you're asking? Okay. Um, what, what surprised me is, is how much you get to cut out, <laughs> you know, like, um, part of the idea is to make it lean, right, you know? I think um, Liz just yeah, cut 35,000 yeah. words from her <laughs> book. <laughs> Liz wrote a pretty ripping book called Dear Daughter, in case, in case you guys don't know it. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, it's lean, you know, it, it cooks. And so, I mean, I think that's, that's the fun thing about, about writing, um, a crime novel is yeah you get to you get to cut so much you know you get to really you get to really just focus on on making pictures with words and and um and making it move how much did you cut um a lot probably about half of what i wrote wow <laughs> um, yeah i don't really cut very much oh no well your stories are pretty lean too they're lean yeah. i think i just i never get them you're more efficient <laughs> yeah very efficient <laughs> Um, my my new book is 299 pages, and it makes me really mad. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want one more, or do you want? I thought it was left? gonna. I, when I started writing this book, I was like, "This is gonna be like a 450 page LA epic," and now it's uh -huh. like it's 299 fucking pages. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good length. So, what kind of stuff did you end up cutting? Oh, I like I had a I had a whole chapter about when Jack and Wilma met, and um, and I just took that whole chapter out. Um, I had like intentional themes, and then uh, which is funny because you were talking about all mm. these other things, and I, I and I tried to take all of that out. Like huh. if I was like, oh, you know, this is getting a little didactic about take it out, you know, and mm. any um, anything that started looking too pretty, you know, I would take it out. Um, power, paragraphs about uh, about setting, take those out. Um, almost all the they. You, know, you Jack took out said, all the Wilma paragraphs said. about setting. Not about no, I, I, not all of them. But like, <laughs> if it's a paragraph about it, I took it out, or I took out half of it. Okay. And, you know yeah. that kind of thing. Um, California's still a character. <laughs> 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 no, but you know how? I mean, if you're describing three things, that's probably two too many in a crime novel. Mm. You know, so 
So just describe one thing. All right, so you know that there's a vase over there. Keep going. Um, <laughs> though in the section I, I just read, I told you everything that was in that bar. So I guess I didn't cut it all out. Yeah, but that was the point of that. He yeah, was yeah, he was to asked to that. do that, yeah. Any other questions? Well, you did that story in, in the last several Drunken Masters about the, about the fighter. Right. And um, there's not really that much fighting. Most of it was about his training. Most of it was about like his childhood and thinking about it and his struggles and what the, re the reasons why he was in the ring. And there were all of those things. And then there were the fight scenes because there had to be there. Not because they had to. I mean, you, you seem to enjoy illustrating them. They came, they came out well. Um, but... Um, but I, th I think that that's what makes a, a good a good crime novel. Like, um, I mean, I could I could pick <laughs> I could pick out a bunch of examples in this room. But but um, but but just to stick with kind of um, like James M. Cain, he he has these two great classic novels, Double Indemnity, and um, and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Postman Always Rings Twice. There's like Two violent pages, you know, <laughs> and just you just hang on the whole thing, you know, because it's really, I mean, the, that book is about a couple who decides to to kill the the woman's husband, and um, and then they get away with it, like halfway through the book, and then they have to live with <laughs> with each other, um, uh, knowing that both of them is willing to kill their partner to to go with <laughs> someone else, you know, and so that that that's that that to me is is way better than oh yeah we drove them off a cliff. Um, you know, so, so, I mean, I, it's not, I mean, I, the, I like, I like thinking about the reactions to violence more than the violence itself, you know, or, or the preparations or the world of it, I guess. So does that make sense? All right. Um, any other questions? And if not, there are books for sale. Please buy them. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.